Oftentimes when meeting with someone about a particular issue, I will normally, the way I'll do it is I, I will lead with the main issue, at, the issue at hand, and then try and end with some sort of resolve. I, I'll, I'll sit down, address the issue right at the top, and before we uh, end our conversation, hopefully we have uh, reached some sort of resolve or we're on our way there to some sort of answer by the end. If you have your Bibles, turn to Titus chapter 3. We are continuing our series through Titus this morning, entitled The Right Kind of Church in a World Gone Wrong. And in our passage for today, we are going to see the Apostle Paul, as he ends this book, circle the wagon back to the issue he led with, the problem of false teachers influencing those in the church. Paul led with this problem, and he ends with resolve. Now, as we've said already, this problem was serious. Teachers were influencing those in the church and were threatening the health of the church. So serious were these threats that Paul leaves one of his best and later sends some of his best to minister to these churches. First, he leaves Titus. Flip back. If you have to flip, you, you don't have to flip in my Bible. Back to Titus 1. Look at verse 5, Titus 1, 5. Paul says, this is why I left you in Crete, Titus, so that you might put what remained into order. And remember we said that phrase, put what remained into order, literally means to set straight further. I have left you in Crete to set these people straight even further, Titus. They had responded in repentance and faith to the gospel of Jesus Christ, so they had been set straight at one time, but it was time again for them to be set straight further. And hopefully you're here this morning, believers, to be set straight further. We all need that from God's Word. We need it each and every day and each and every week as we meet. They needed to be set straight further. Why? A number of reasons, but one of the main reasons why is because Paul says there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers, deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. They are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach, devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of the people who turn away from the truth. So there are these false teachers who are influencing those in Christ's church. There are some in Christ's church who are responding to this false message and they are drifting from the faith. So Paul says to Titus, Titus, I've left you here in Crete to deal with this situation, to appoint leaders, elders, to silence those wicked influencers, to rebuke sharply those in the church who have been influenced by false teachers, that they may be sound in the faith. Look back at Titus 3. Not only does Paul leave Titus to lead and minister in Crete, but he also sends others. Skip down to verse 12, and let's look at verses 12 through 15 of Titus 3. He says, When I send Artemis or Tychicus to you, do your best to come to me, Titus, at Nicopolis, for I have decided to spend the winter there. That's in Nicopolis. 
Verse 13, do your best to speed Zenos the lawyer and Apollos on their way. See that they lack nothing and let our people learn to devote themselves to good works so as to help cases of urgent need and not be unfruitful. All who are with me send greetings to you. Greet those who love us in the faith. Grace be with you all. Now, again, the issue with the churches here on the island of Crete, it was so serious that Paul leaves one of his best, Titus, to lead those in the church to resist these dangerous, wicked influencers, these false teachers who are threatening to rip the church apart. He tells Titus that he's also going to send Artemis or Tychicus, one or the other, to relieve him so that Titus can then leave the island of Crete and go spend winter with Paul in Nicopolis. An interesting thing about Nicopolis, this is just extra, I won't charge you for it, okay? I looked it up uh, studying about this area. It's located near the Ionian Sea in Greece. Would have been a very warm place to spend winter. Northern Greece would have been a bit colder, but winter in Nicopolis would be like saying, we're going to spend Christmas in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. Okay, that's, that'll, that'll give you a little idea of what the winter months in Nicopolis were, were like. Paul had settled in a warm place for the winter, possibly for a brief sabbatical with uh, Titus, a little, little brief rest there in pre preparation for uh, ministry in the spring and summer months. Or he might have uh, stopped off there to minister there without hindrances during the winter months. We don't know for sure. But Paul is not going to leave the Christians at Crete without a solid leader. He may take Titus, but he's going to replace him with someone just as good. They were in a dangerous and vulnerable place with these false teachers. So when Paul takes Titus, he leaves them with Tychicus or Artemis. Now, we don't know much about Artemis, but we do know quite a bit about Tychicus from Scripture. We meet him in Acts chapter 20 verse 14. He accompanied Paul at times during his missionary journeys. He was the one who carried the very important epistle of Ephesians to the uh, Christians at Ephesus and of course when we preached to Ephesians, you remember I said that that was a circular letter so it was not meant to stay at Ephesus but it was meant to be passed around and, and to the different, different churches. Tychicus was also the one who delivered Colossians and Philemon as well. So he was, he was trusted by Paul. Paul said of Tychicus in Colossians 4-7, Tychicus is a beloved brother and faithful minister and fellow servant in the Lord. Tychicus, like Titus, was viewed by Paul as being equally skilled in ministry. And he viewed Tychicus going to an area same as Titus going. And while we don't know much about Artemis, Paul obviously felt that he was on equal ground with Tychicus because he said he was going to either send one or the other. Artemis being mentioned here reminds us of all the unknown, obscure, yet pivotal players in God's kingdom story. Listen, heaven is and will be littered with unknown, obscure, yet faithful men and women of God. Probably all of us are going to land in that group. There may be some 
future Billy Grahams up here uh, in our church. Not up here, of course, but in our church. We don't know, but more than likely, we're going to be numbered like, like Artemis with the obscure. But we have a wonderful example here of how we're to remain faithful no matter what. We are to remain faithful for God's glory, not for the recognition and applause of men. Notice who else Paul had already sent. Verse 13, he said, Do your best to speed Zenus, the lawyer. I let Brett know there's hope for lawyers here because we've got Zenus just giving him a hard time. I didn't want to leave you all out of that fun. And uh, Apollos, on their way, see that they lack nothing. Paul probably sent this letter, the letter of Titus, by way of Apollos and Zenos. Zenos is another uh, obscure character. We don't know any more than what we have here. Uh, we learn a lot about him, though, simply by the fact that he was sent by Paul to minister in a difficult context, and he is serving alongside Apollos. That tells us quite a bit right there. I mean, if you're numbered with Apollos, you're sent by Paul, you're someone special in God's kingdom. We don't know if Zenos was a Jew or Gentile. His name seems to suggest Gentile, but that's not the case for Apollos. And the fact that he was sent to minister in Crete may be indication to us that he was a Gentile, but he's running around with Apollos. We know Apollos was, was Jewish, but he, like Paul, had both Jewish and Gentile companions. If he was a Jew, this meant that Zenos was an expert in Jewish law, a former rabbi. If he was a Gentile, that meant he would have been a person of high standing, maybe in the Roman Empire. Either way, Zenos would have been an influential person before salvation, and now here we have him, a committed Christ follower faithfully serving the Lord by serving Christ's church in obscurity. And Apollos, he hardly needs an introduction, right? For those of you all who have been with us for a long time, when we went through the book of 1 Corinthians and when we spent two years in the book of Acts, you should know a little bit about Apollos, okay? Apollos was an Alexandrian Jew who was well-versed in Scripture, gifted communicator before becoming a Christian, after salvation, he became a skilled preacher, faithful, fruitful laborer in the Lord. He and Paul made a good ministry team in Corinth. He was the one God used to water the seed that Paul sowed in ministry before God brought the increase. He was so respected, Apollos was, with the Christians in Corinth that they actually placed him on par with Peter and Paul. Not in a healthy way, but still it shows they had a lot of respect for Apollos. Paul sent all of these faithful laborers to serve on the island of Crete. Why? Well, one, they needed it, right? This was a big island. We talked about that. Lots of churches in, in each of the towns. False teaching was clouding the gospel message in the church, hindering people from the true and only message that saves non-believers and grows believers in godliness, the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. So Paul leaves Titus and sends Zenos and Apollos, Artemis or Tychicus, so that God's people in Crete would, verse 14, learn to devote themselves to good works so as to help cases of urgent need and not be 
unfruitful. He sent them so that they would appoint godly leaders who would silence false teachers, combating their heretical teaching with the truth of God's word so that God's people would think rightly, have the right desires, and would then live rightly. He sent them so that they would encourage men and women, young and old in the church, to live godly lives, to pour into one another so that the gospel would be adorned, Christ's church would be built up. He sent them to instruct God's people to live as citizens of God's people on the island of Crete so that citizens of Crete would become citizens of God's kingdom. He sent them to instruct those in the church to devote themselves to good works, to be fruitful and help the church. Notice he also calls for the leaders he leaves and sends to Crete to love and serve each other as well. It matters not if you're a leader or a faithful lay person, you're to love and serve each other. He tells Artemis or Tychicus to relieve Titus, Titus to provide for Zenos and Apollos. He says, as you send them on their way, Titus, make sure they're lacking in nothing. He calls for his leaders to be hospitable and loving. He says in verse 15, those who are with me send greetings to you. Greet those who love us in the faith. Leaders are to love and serve one another, same as they do God's people, same as God's people love and serve their fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. Again, it matters not. We are to love one another. Notice also here, very, very clear text, uh, very, very clear application to be made from this text. I bet you didn't think there was all this application from this list of names, but there is. We're reminded here, as we are throughout Scripture, of the wonderful truth that God has chosen to use people for His great work, for His kingdom purposes. Believers, He has called for you and me to serve Him for His kingdom purposes. Charles Swindoll in his commentary on Titus, tells us this. Excuse the lengthy quote, but I wanted to include it all because it's good. Let's look at it up on the screen. I'm going to read it for us. He says, As I reflect on Paul's ministry and his reliance upon others to complete it, I'm amazed the Lord chooses to involve people in his sacred work. God doesn't have to involve people. He could call in hosts of angels to get the job done far more efficiently. He could bat an eyelash and everything he desires would become reality. Instead, he calls people to become instruments of his grace and he equips the church to be the mouthpiece of the gospel. He invites the contributions of men and women who submit to his sovereignty and remain faithful to his calling. If he wants a message declared, he employs human lips. If he wants the truth written, he inspires a human mind and empowers human hands. If he wants grace to be modeled, he calls, saves, justifies, sanctifies, and transforms people to become his examples of loving mercy. God has done this. He's doing this today. He wants to use you in this way. I know that sounds cliche, but you know what? Things become cliche when they're true. That's why they're repeated again and again. Believers, what is your role in God's kingdom work? He has a role for you to play. If you have been saved, you have been called to minister. 
Your homework assignment this week, throughout the week, is to find where God wants to use you if that's not clear to you yet. Pray for clarity on this. Pray that God would equip you to use you to serve Him in whatever area, in obscurity or up front, whatever that looks like. Do it faithfully. Seek God's clarity in that calling and serve Him in that way to advance His kingdom. Notice the end of verse 15. Paul ends the way he began. It says, grace be with you all. Again, Paul knew for his faithful laborers to minister in difficult contexts like Crete, they were going to need God to enable them with his grace to do this great work of ministry. Well, here at the end of the book, after he reminds Titus of all of those he's left and sent to help combat false teachings on the island of Crete in the church, Paul ends by giving one last bit of instruction when it comes to dealing with false teachers who threaten the spiritual health and unity of Christ's church. And this applies to us today. It certainly applies to us. First, he tells them this. Number one, avoid foolish and unprofitable discussions with false teachers. Verse 9, it's pretty clear. But avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. Tell us what you really think, Paul, right? I love how he just lets us have it here. Before we discuss Paul's instruction here to the leaders, we need to talk about, again, the type of, of false teaching that the Christians in Crete were dealing with. We learn about it in Titus chapter 1, verse 10. Look back over at Titus 1, verse 10. Look at the end of verse 10. It talks about those of the circumcision party. We said earlier in the study, there were lots of competing belief systems in the early church like there is today. One group was known as the circumcision party, also known as the Judaizers. They claimed to be a Christian group who traveled around and taught that to be saved and to grow in godliness, to be the man or woman that God has called for his people to be, one must abide by Jewish dietary restrictions, be circumcised, keep all the festivals, take vows, present themselves to the temple, so on and so forth, basically re-embrace Old Testament Judaism. They were putting all these extra biblical requirements on individuals saying one must do this to be saved and grow in godliness and not do that. And we're told in, in Titus 1.14 that this group was teaching from other sources other than Scripture. They were holding up these teachings on par with Scripture. They were calling for the believers in Crete to devote themselves to, uh, they, they, were, they were calling for the believers in Crete to, uh, the, the false teachers were calling for them to devote themselves to Jewish myths and extra biblical commands. They were adding to the teaching of scripture, teaching Jewish myths, giving extra biblical, non-biblical commands to people, and they were turning people's hearts away from the truth. Paul speaks more of these teachings in Titus chapter 3, verse 9. Notice we're told they were teaching controversial things in regard to the list of names that we have all throughout the Old Testament. I read a little more on this, and I read where they were taking those passages, you know, that we read, some of you skip, of those long lists of names. I, I want to hear some of you uh, 
try to pronounce some of those names. We have fun. We, we get to laughing when we read them at home. But I read where they were taking these long list of names and were teaching myths associated with those names, giving extra biblical commands from those texts that had not been given. Instead of simply dealing with what they had in Scripture, they were adding to those writings, debating about them in the church, and these extra biblical and mythical teachings were causing division in the church. We encounter this sometimes with certain passages of scripture, people adding to the text, connecting dots that are not there. Sometimes people ask questions, well, what happened next? What did so-and-so do next? What do you think God meant by doing this? Or what do you think this meant? And we, we just don't know. We don't have it. And you need to be very, very careful to try and go and connect dots where scripture does not connect the dots. You know why? Because we're sinful. We can make a wreck of things by adding what we think to the scripture. We need to have God drive what we say and do from his word. That's what I try and do each and every week. I've told you before, if I was just up here spouting off my opinions, we would end up in a ditch quickly. I try not to move very far away from this. What does Paul tell the elders to do with these teachers and their teachings? Titus 1, Paul tells the leaders in the church to silence these false teachers. You remember what that word silence means? Who can tell me? Muzzle. Muzzle them. Shut them down by shutting them up. That's basically what Paul's saying. Titus 3, 9, he says avoid. That word means avoid. Steer clear, right? of discussing these foolish. Now, that's the Greek word moros, which is where we get our English word what? Moron, yeah. Steer clear of these, these moronic controversies, genealogies, and quarrels about the law. Why? Because at best it doesn't edify. They do not contribute to the health and the spiritual growth of the church. At worst, they lead people astray, away from God's gospel message of redemption. Now listen, don't hear Paul say and don't hear me say that we should never ask questions and discuss things concerning Scripture. We should when it, when it edifies, when it results in salvation, when it leads to a gospel conversation and grows God's people in, in godliness. Those types of conversations should happen. But there are many conversations that, that are unedifying and they're disastrous at worst. I've learned to discern pretty quickly over the years with certain people uh, where they're coming from and certain questions they ask and things they, they say. And I can discern pretty quickly when I'm dealing with a hard-hearted, hard-headed, unreasonable individual, when they're, when they're sharing things and asking questions about things that are unbiblical. Listen, trying to reason with and persuade a person like that is an exercise in futility. And that's what Paul is saying. Can God change their heart, open their ears to the truth? Of course he can, but at times the best thing to do is to step away from those conversations and just pray 
for that individual. If you are dealing with someone who is off in their thinking, majoring in the minors, they should be corrected in love in hopes of a change, but there are some who are so set in their heretical ways, want to eat up all the time in Bible study, arguing about things that are unprofitable and worthless and keep you from ministering to others who need to hear and respond to the truth of God's gospel. They may be trying to lead people astray, and Paul tells pastors and church leaders this would apply to our bible study leaders avoid getting sucked into discussing foolish moronic unprofitable worthless teachings like these do not neglect opportunities to preach the gospel to those who need it and equip the saints with the core teachings of christianity that serve to grow them in godliness do not neglect those things by getting sidetracked by these unedifying and foolish discussions it's what paul is saying now, some of you hear this and you kind of read the context and you're saying, well, how does this apply to us? I mean, let's be honest. I've only encountered just a select few times when I've had discussions about Jewish dietary restrictions and I've never had a conversation about myths, about the list of names in the Old Testament. Never had to debate that. That's true. But do we encounter false teachings that add to, take away from, misinterpret or explain away the clear core teachings of the Christian faith? We do all the time, don't we? What are we to do with these false teachings in the church? Paul tells us in Titus, we are not to let them get airtime in our teaching times. That's what he says. Do not let them get airtime in our teaching times. Paul is using harsh language here so that we'll perk up and listen. It can be disastrous. If you're dealing with someone who tries to derail a biblical discussion with heretical teachings and lead those in the group astray from the truth of God's word, or if someone constantly takes the discussion away from what Scripture teaches down these long, endless rabbit trails to teachings that are foolish and unprofitable, leaders are to silence those teachings, and the Bible study leaders are not to take the bait. Now, they're to do it in love, but they're to do it. They're to keep the main thing, the main thing, that which is primary, primary. They're to let God's word drive what they say and do and teach and discuss, teaching those things foundational to salvation and growth in godliness. That's what Paul's saying. Point number two, in addition to avoiding foolish and unprofitable discussions with false teachers, pastors and church leaders are to also warn them carefully before avoiding them completely. I'm going to talk a little bit about church discipline. I'm just giving you a little bit of a warning. Hard teaching, but we need to perk up and listen. Verses 10 11. As for a person who stirs up division. Now, some separate this group and say, Paul's talking about false teachers, and then he's talking about another divisive group. I don't think he's left talking about false teachers. I, I think that's who he's referring to here. In verse 9, he says their teachings bring dissension. Paul is talking about those who stir up division with their teaching. As for a person who stirs up division, after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him, knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, he is self-condemned. 
There are few doctrines in evangelical churches today that people take more issue with than this doctrine, this teaching of church discipline. Many feel as if the church should be spending their time overlooking wrongs and, and just overlooking even serious sin, forgiving sin, even when they're dealing with individuals who are not seeking forgiveness, who are not repentant, some who are unregenerate. Like it or not, God calls for the leaders in his church to exercise church discipline. This is clearly taught in Scripture in Matthew 18, Romans 16, 1 Corinthians 5, 2 Corinthians 2, Galatians 6, 1 Thessalonians 5, 2 Thessalonians 3, 1 Timothy 5, Hebrews 13, 2 John, 3 John, Titus 1 and 3. Okay? Many have issues with it because they don't like that word discipline. That just sounds harsh and unloving. But listen, what we learn in Scripture is that the opposite is in fact true. We learn that exercising church discipline is one of the most loving things that one can do for an individual. And one of the most unloving acts one can do is allow for one to continue in sin and error. God's word says that discipline done right leads people to repentance. It can actually lead individuals back into a right relationship with God or a non-believer to saving faith. Not disciplining someone, sweeping their sin under the rug is viewed by God as an act of hatred. Parents, remember what God has to say about it in Proverbs 13, 24 when it comes to our kids? Whoever spares the rod hates his son, but he who loves him is diligent to discipline him. Why? Because with discipline comes correction. This is God's method for bringing sinners to repentance. Now, when talking about church discipline, let me ask you this. Does this mean that every sin a believer commits is deserving of church discipline. I sure hope not. We'd never get out of here when we got together, right? Yeah, if you, if you sped to church this morning, someone saw you, you knowingly did it, you should feel bad about it, you should, you should be remorseful, you should repent of that sin, but, but not every sin needs to be dealt with corporately by the church, but there are some sins singled out in Scripture that are deserving of this type of discipline. According to Paul here in Titus 3, false teaching that lead people away from God's gospel message of salvation hinders believers from growing in godliness and brings about dissension in the church is certainly worthy of discipline. Paul, obviously influenced by Jesus in Matthew 18, says that first one should go to the individual teaching heresy and stirring up trouble and confront him or her in hopes of correcting him or her before silencing and distancing oneself from those individuals. One should confront them, not once but twice, Christ says in Matthew 18 to confront them alone, then bring a mature Christ follower or two with you, preferably an elder or a deacon with you to, to confront them. And if they refuse that, you're to bring it before the church. And if they refuse correction from the church, you're to remove them from fellowship. That's Jesus' words. Paul says the same thing here. He says, after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him. 
Christ says, look at this passage up here, Matthew 18, 15 through 17, pretty clear. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. In other words, treat him like a non-believer because he just might be. Titus 3.11, knowing that such a person, after having rejected discipline, is warped and sinful, he is self-condemned. He's condemning himself by his actions. He's the one responsible, by the way, right? God is sovereign, but who's responsible for sin? We are. He is self-condemned. Paul says in Ephesians, uh, I'm sorry, in 1 Corinthians 5, get ready, this is pretty weighty here. This is pretty hard hitting. It says, don't associate with that individual. Purge the evil person from among you. Deliver them over to Satan. What does Paul mean by that? Again, that sounds super harsh, doesn't it? Well, believe it or not, this is Paul's way of saying this person is to be removed from Christian fellowship. You see, Satan is called by the Lord Jesus, the prince of this world. So to deliver someone over to him is to remove that person from being associated with the church, with the local church, with local believers, and number them with the ungodly. Many still believe this to be cruel. They think it's harsh to treat someone in the church this way. They think that's the last place a, a person needs to be numbered like that is with the ungodly. If anybody needs to be associated with the saints, surely they do. You may be thinking that way. You may be thinking that that just sounds unloving. Listen, again, while we hate talking about church discipline and view it as a harsh and unloving act, if done right, don't believe what the world tells you. If done right, it's the most loving thing that you can do for a person can actually lead individuals back into a right relationship with God. And that should be our aim in doing it. Look at what Charles Swindoll says. This is great. No pastor or body of elders should delight in the disciplinary removal of a brother or sister. I can be honest with you and say, I don't delight in it. I don't. The removal must be conducted in love and always with a view toward restoration, not condemnation. It must be done in love with a desire for restoration. But get this, it must be done for restoration to occur. That's key. With discipline comes Correction. This is God's method for bringing sinners to repentance. Paul says they're to be delivered to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that the spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. In other words, unrepentant sinners are to be put out so that they might come to the end of themselves and repent so they can be brought back in. If they're true believers, simply wayward, pray for them. Trust that the Spirit of God will do that work necessary as you deal with them in God's Word to convict them, 
so they can be restored. If they don't respond, we, we have our answer to where those individuals are. And our response for them is to take God's gospel message to them in order to win them for Christ. Counter their false beliefs and teachings with the truth of Scripture while not getting entangled in unfruitful discussions. Pray that the Spirit of God, through His Word, would convict them of sin and save them by His grace. Listen. Those types of conversations will not happen if the person is allowed to continue in sin and spread their lies and not, is not disciplined in love, being silenced, even removed from the fellowship of the saints. We ought to love someone enough to make those tough decisions. We ought to care about the church enough to silence and remove false teachers who refuse correction, who attempt to lead God's people away from the saving work of Jesus Christ. What well, again, let me say this. I hope and pray this morning that you leave here understanding that sin, serious sin like this, should be dealt with by the church, should be taken seriously, dealt with swiftly. I hope you welcome that. It's needed for us to be who God has called for us to be as a church. Maybe... You're a part of a church who uh, did not do this in the right way, left the negative taste in your mouth when it comes to the topic of church discipline. Maybe they didn't practice it in a way that is loving, not in the way that longs to see unrepentant sinners turn back to God and rejoin His family, in a way that seeks to see the lost come to saving faith in Jesus Christ. I hope this morning that your mentality changes. If you're still struggling with this, commit to do the study guide this week. Read through those passages of Scripture. Pray that God would deal with your, your heart on this issue and, and open your eyes to the need for church discipline when it is called for. Maybe some of you are here this morning. God's been working on you this morning. Maybe, maybe you're not a believer. Maybe you're steeped in sin right now, but it's, it, it's not that you're a, a wayward saint. You're an unrepentant, unregenerate sinner. Listen, for you to be at peace with God and join His family, you have to first admit your sinfulness and your need. You have to admit the fact that you're in need of what only God can give, and that is righteousness from His Son, forgiveness and restoration. I urge you today, if you're here this morning, you're not trusting in Christ alone for your salvation. I pray today be the day that your allegiance change. I urge you today, Step off the tiny throne of the kingdom of self and bow your knee to King Jesus. Make him Lord today. Be saved and be restored. That's my prayer for you. Let's pray together.